Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Although, it's just occurred to me that someone I work with a lot has been giving me dummy deadlines. You know, where they give you the deadline that is actually a few days before the real deadline. Like, because they know I work so close to the wire. Yeah, they must just know that you work better under stress. Mm, Potentially. Actually, I don't get too stressed about deadlines because I use some amazing project management software to manage my time. So this is becoming a thing where you 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 turn a skit into a stream time message. I like it. I did. I am. Streamtime, who is our major supporter of ADR and everything we do, is also the creator of some amazing project management software that has over 30,636 people using it every day. That many people can't be wrong. So if you haven't tried it, head over to streamtime.net and try it for free. And if you like it, use the code ADR2020 to get a listener's discount. 30,636 is an oddly specific number. Um, <laughs> we'll leave a link in the episode description. So you can scroll down there in whatever podcast app you're using, check the website, SoundCloud, all that stuff. All right, nice. So who do we have on this episode? On this episode, we have Andrew Ashton, Creative Director at Work Art Life Studios, uh, Alliance Graphique International member, multi-award winner. He's been in the industry for over 30 years and just happened to be in Sydney. So we didn't have the chance to have a quick discussion with him. Yeah, it was really great. My very quick story about Andrew that's very memorable for me was many years ago, I remember visiting with our dear friend Simon Pemberton, and I remember two things really distinctively. One is that there were so many like printed beautiful things everywhere, like postcard sized mm. artworks and that sort of stuff. And I ended up taking like an, Andrew ended up giving us an entire pile of really cool like magazines and things. I'm sure he's all he's designed all of them. And I also remember distinctively sitting there listening to these two talk and had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. So <laughs> yeah. that was my that was my first first memory of just not understanding the design industry as much as these two kind of leaders did at the time. The beautiful thing about those two people as well is that you, you could have asked at any point they would have explained it with no kind of judgment on you. Oh, absolutely. I was just terrified at how little I knew at the time. I love talking with Andrew because you, you never know where the conversation is going to go. It's always going to be beneficial, but he's curiosity and his the depth of his references is just immense uh, and leading up to this i've been thinking about it quite a bit actually because there's really two sides to andrew it's similar to how he uses his journals that we talk about in the episode one side of his journals is for work ideation and it's really messy and visual and the other side is all for his practice which is much more regimented and reflective and in this interview i think you see those two sides come through like some of his answers are really insightful but quite relaxed and, you know, sort of still manifesting, where other times he gets really excitable and sort of impassioned and try to urgently make a point. Yeah, it is It is infectious. And case in point, at the end of this episode, he tells us about an exhibition that by the time this episode comes out, it will be over. But he was just so excited about it. And um, we had a really good time talking to him about it. So we left it in. Yeah. He also turned up with a whole bunch of extras, like really raised the bar for like future guests. Like he designed a poster, he put together a song playlist, and he wrote three poems that represent the episode's kind of three chapters. Yeah, we actually got him to read the three poems during the episode, and it was great to hear them in his voice. Um, okay, we're probably giving a little bit too much away as we usually do. Shall we jump in? <laughs> yeah, we should. In this one, at the very start, we did a little strategy that we've been employing for a little while now where we kind of just start recording during the warm-up chat. It seems to make a better discussion and less question and answer kind of thing. So we chose to drop you in during a sort of funny conversation around how to prepare for public speaking or being interviewed on a podcast. So we begin with Andrew retelling a story about the last time he presented at AG Ideas. We really enjoyed it. So I hope you guys do too. The last AG Ideas thing that I did, you've only got 15 minutes and you're just thrown on stage. And I was so nervous. It was the second time I did it. I get very nervous. And I had all the script on an iPad and I was reading the thing. Mm. And I looked down and my notes slid away and I lost my spot. <laughs> and, you know, there's a big fat timer going, da, da, da. And I just lost it. So what did you do? I kind of freaked out and then I just pulled myself together. So, so what does a freak out look like for you? Standing there calmly or screaming? In, well, in my head, 
in my head I'm having a full-on meltdown. Yeah. And I, 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 I suppose I tried to make a joke of it and then I slid back in, but it just took me, it just completely wrecked the pace of what I planned. Yeah. Because I spent a lot of time with Gary Wilson and, you know, he was one that always used to beat into me, you know, like a, a good speech is a prepared speech. Do you think you can over-prepare though? Absolutely with me. Yeah. yeah. I, de- I definitely get that as well. Yeah. And I've got to a point where as long as I know the content really well, I'll be okay. Yeah. I, I just don't like ad-libbing. It's just it's just something I don't like doing as I don't – I will try not to say at the end of the day or to be honest with you or those sorts of things. They drive me crazy. <laughs> I can't stand truisms and, yeah. Um, yeah, and saying um and – Sometimes I'm agreeant and I'm watching you nod, which is the right thing to do instead of saying yes. <laughs> we because never say I'm on this podcast because we edit them out. Yes. <laughs> of course you do. The pace is perfect in yeah. the podcast, which is why I disappoint so many people when I see them in real life. Yeah. It's, it's uh, a lot of arms. Uh, and I can't remember anything. We do say interesting a lot. We do. I leave them in. I'm sure there's people <laughs> out there doing a drinking game. <laughs> Of interesting. Yeah, well, we say, oh, that's really interesting, Andrew. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that? <laughs> and then when you conclude that, I'll say, yeah, that's really interesting because it just, it fits in everywhere. Yeah. And we are interested, but we need to expand our vocabulary a little bit. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, it was really refreshing. We threw a few emails back and forth and then you called me. Right. I, I love to talk on the phone mm. and I always think that's the easiest, like a five minute conversation. I can get everything out and over and done with, mm. uh, or the, or it could be all day going back and forth in email, Slack or text. We're, we're pretty rare though. Yep. Who like to talk yeah. on the real phone, on in, the front real of, phone. in front of real people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's part of anyone who knows me knows that I love a good old crap on and I can chew up 40, 30 minutes very quickly, dependent on, you know, whether I'm doing anything. I, I think it's also really important to talk to people. It, it's hard to measure people through a conversation, but I suppose there are little moments and pieces of serendipity that you get from a, a, a real conversation that a text can't communicate. So do you both answer the phone as well, or do you just call people? Because I remember Mike Montero, he was talking about the phone on one of his podcasts years ago and someone else was on the podcast from his office and said, you don't answer your phone. He says, no, no, no. I use the phone like a weapon. It's like <laughs> I call people when I need something, but I don't answer it. I so do you, you two, yeah. you do, I, I know definitely you answer, answer the yeah. phone, but I've never called you, Andrew. So do you answer the phone? Uh, I do if I know the number. Right. Yeah. If it's Tanusia, um, not sure. <laughs> no, I answered a call today from South Australia and it turned out to be some guy trying to sell me services for graphic design digital people <laughs> i'll take 10 yeah <laughs> yeah I, I generally answer the phone if i know the person or i don't answer the phone if i don't want to speak to the person but generally if i've got a moment i will talk how do you structure your time as well because i'm i'm very structured like you know i've got half an hour for this and if i get it done earlier and the phone goes i'll answer it but if if i'm in the middle of something i won't answer the phone when i'm in thinking mode i turn things off because I just need to be present in that moment. Sometimes when I'm working on work, I backbrain it. So I do just welcome the distraction. Backbraining is, I use it often when I'm coming up with work because I need tons of time to work something through. And the more time that I let a project just sort of bubble over, the better. So there's a um, program Henry Winkler plays a, an acting coach and he talks about this idea of a, of a hard five versus a lazy five. So a hard five minutes is a hard five minutes and a lazy five can be anything up to half an hour. So <laughs> often I'll precurse a discussion with um, hard five yep. or lazy five. I always lie and I'll say, oh, look, I, yeah, I can talk, but I've, I'm going into a meeting in five minutes. Right. Just I knew it. <laughs> piece of shit i just don't answer the phone I, like almost never answer the phone yes so a lot of people can't stand it don't don't do it and i definitely see in the younger generation where they they just do not answer they they will wait for it to stop ringing and then go and check the the message yeah i didn't check the message <laughs> no it's, it's just because i'll 
the problems that I find as I'm going through working on a project or something like that, it's like, I swear we had this conversation somewhere and I'll go through Slack and I can't find any evidence of what we discussed. And I'll go through my emails, I can't find any evidence. And it's because we've spoken about it on the phone. Like I need that written, researchable like conversation. I need evidence of it later. Right, but that, that time that you spent looking for that conversation, you could have just called someone and said, oh, didn't we talk about this? Yeah, but that's hoping that they remember that we had the conversation right. as well. Is that because it's a, a legal thing or, you know, like if you don't deliver on a project? Yeah, it's more like a deliverable. Yeah. Yeah, like a key part of a project. Okay. Like dates and budgets and stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that stuff needs to be written. Yeah, okay. But Fair you enough. can write yourself. Right. I got people for that. I think if you answer the phone though, it's something, or and if you use the phone, you've got um, some capture of courage because it takes courage to just take a call and not listen to what they've said before you get back to them. I, I don't mind just jumping straight into a conversation. Look, it, it can get very difficult when it's a testy moment with a client or you haven't delivered on something and you need to have a, quite a courageous conversation and being prepared can help, mm. obviously. Often people will call me and I won't even listen to their voicemail. I'll just call them straight back. I'm the same. You talked about backbraining. What does that mean? Backbraining is a technique that I use for idea generation or ideation. And it's the process of familiarizing yourself with a concept or a brief or a, a question that needs answering. And rather than being in that mode where you have to have an answer at that particular moment in time, I will ask a question to it and then I'll backbrain it and maybe let a day go past, an hour go past, um, even a swim like today, I was backbraining something about what we we're going to discuss today and I was walking down to the beach and suddenly it happened and I didn't happen to have my phone so I asked my wife to text me the four words. but. I think when you're in a, in a calm, calmer space, that's when great ideas come to you and backbraining allows that. Mm. So it's almost really like that. It's building the research. It's, it's building that kind of knowledge in your head so then the knowledge can start to form links. In yeah, true. Yeah. But also research has proven that you know, the human brain, apart from AI, it seems, is the most sophisticated thinking machine on the planet. Each of our, we've all got that capacity and it's been developed over millennia. Your subconscious is, is an incredible processing apparatus and in processing through ideas and coming, coming up with better questions and looking ultimately for better solutions. I'll often leave it to something that's millennia old to do that. Mm. Is it important during this process to be doing something manual or you know going for a walk you know is it a bit like the shower thought thing like you're trying to do it's exactly where the shower thought comes from right right can you could you be doing work or doing some craft of often yeah Yeah. often i'll be doing artwork or kerning type or right or hand rendering something doing a drawing or often think backbraining too is just drawing you mentioned to me the other day about you were talking about my practice has become more artful in the last seven years. And I was thinking about that and it, it came about because I won uh, for desktop awards and illustration thing and they gave me a Wacom and it took me a while to use it, but uh, I pulled it out eventually and started using it. I suppose the artist in my studio, Jeff Nees, he threatened to start using it and I kind of went, no, I'm going to start using it. And it took me a while to de-mouse myself. But once I got into using a pen again, it ignited a whole part of my practice that uh, was dormant. And I found drawing is just a, a fantastic way of giving something your attention and also allowing you just to process things for the sake of it. You might be doodling something or that's why I think doodling is so important in meetings because mm. it, it sort of helps you to focus on what's being said. What is your preferred medium? We're talking about like Wacom and, you know, like using Apple devices and stuff like that. But what do you typically find yourself, like if you are sketching, is it just pen and paper? Do you, um, do you use digital apps and things like that? Is everything digitized? Is nothing? Well, I always start, I've always kept a diary mm. my entire career. I've had, I've got diaries that go back to 
Randwick in 89, like my first diary I've still got. Oh, wow. I live in these, I've got two running at the moment and people that work with me know that I do this. I, I've got practice one side and on the other side I've got work and work obviously sort of addresses work-based things and practice talks about things that are critical or important in my practice at the time. So I've always got a reference to work from. Mm. It's quite interesting just looking through because your work one is quite loose. Yeah. Where your practice one is quite... Very structured. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? Because uh, it's mainly writing. Mm -hmm. And writing is one of my weapons. Uh, it helps me to get down thoughts very quickly. And I use, I've got this tool which I use called the glimpse, which is it can be a positive or negative. It can be a question. It can be a provo provocation. It can be a neutral. It can be an answer. It can be a prompt but it has to be short, sharp, and operate within uh, a few words. So um, one of the shortest verses in the Bible is he wept. So that's a glimpse. Mm -hmm. Post-it notes on wall, that's a glimpse. Mm -hmm. um, reflection from building across is a glimpse. And so I piece together glimpses and then form them into narratives about work and things. Talking about writing, mm. so whenever we speak to someone about coming on, we normally kind of give three themes that we kind of kind of want to cross and you turned up and you said you'd actually written a poem for each theme yeah should we jump into the first theme yeah which was kind of about where where you came from your backstory yeah the reason why i developed them is that i didn't want to rabbit on too long so i'll start in the bush somewhere in Penno, the bell calls us back home Angophora gums, cicadas, lost sandstone grottos, ice house, go-betweens, countdown on the telly, milk bars open on Sunday, red frogs, empty streets, a galaga machine calling. Up the bell line of roads, blue skies, quiet, the smell of wood and cut wool. Down King George's Road to Nan and Pars, early roast, washing up the shed, Richie Benno. Bounce you divorce kids from there to wander. Heads full of questions. Normal is the answer. That's wonderful. Why design for you? I fell into it. I left school. Year 12, I had no idea what I was going to do. I did a little bit of art. I was okay at drawing at school. I came from a family. There weren't any artists in my family or architects or writers, um, salespeople and nurses and farmers and a friend whose dad was a surveyor, he suggested that I try out for Randwick, which was, it was like an exam-based thing. You had to complete work. Uh, they'd send you a brief. You'd complete three works. Those works would be assessed. They'd ask you in. You'd be assessed over three or four hours where you had to draw like a peg or write a headline or it was quite intense. And that was at Randwick looking over the race course. And then if you made that stage you were interviewed and at that time it was Eden Anthony and Tony Young and if you were accepted you were one of 30 people that were included. I mean you think about now yeah. how easy it is to get into any course really yeah. that's that's quite a few hurdles. And, and also the unfortunate thing is that, is that Michael um, who introduced me uh, to Randwick and that application he ended up not getting in the course. We both applied together and it was really tragic. A few years later, he died of depression-based, drug-based thing. And it was very much a, I suppose he, he's been a talisman for me in my, yeah. in my practice. Mm. I named a font after him actually, when I first started. It was a, a very he a heavy thing for a young person. Yeah. Mm. Just to go back to where we grew up in Pennant Hills and you know, he was working in the bank and I was doing this amazing course. And Right. And so the thing about the course is lots of people, thousands of people applied. I think they've mentioned 3,030 people. That could be a gross exaggeration. The thing about the course was that if you didn't perform, you had a, I suppose, a semester to sort yourself out. And then if you didn't perform that semester, you were out. Wow. It was, it was and it was pretty much nine to 11, five days a week. So were people booted from 
Absolutely. Because, yeah. Yep. Because there was a list of people that wanted to come, yep. you know, and uh, it, it was TAFE fees. Like, I think we'll, I think our fees were like 300 bucks a year. It was cheap back then, yeah. It, so really it would cheap. have made a lot of sense, even if people were yeah. in another course to come across. You spent tons of money in the art shop. Like, mm. that's where most of your money went. So, did it have a very good, it must have had a very good reputation then. Good teachers as well? Fantastic Perhaps. teachers, yeah. yeah. I mentioned them in the other poem, but there was Rod McRae, Brian Crowther, uh, Lisa Eisenman, D. Huxley, Eden Anthony, and they were all very connected right. with Lundia, the studio Lundia and Cato. Mm. Um, and a lot of the great graduates went on to work at Lundia or Ken Cato. Or... I, I don't want to give away the poem, so should we, should we hear the second poem? Sure. This one really talks about the practice, like from art school to today. So it's quite diverse, like it, it crosses 30 years. So I'll just start. It's 88, let's celebrate. Randwick Trake across the road. Drawing life with D, Rod, Tony, Eden and Brian. Louver sisters, Joy Division, Bromide camera groans. Neville Brody stars in Balmain. Mark Newsom lands in Tokyo. Rapidographs, gouache, sable brushes to 10 p.m. Lampotang, Galaha. The internet and Sydney, out they came. An old desk on Pitt Street, NSA was born. No work, more work, dream big. Richmond in Melbourne called, creative director at 31, new names, sold out, sabbatical. Pip and Co in honor of Pip and Tibor. Tin and Ed teaching at Swinburne. AGI bought with it a silence. GFC turned into work art life. I love you, Will and Henry. Vale, David Band. Monash teaching with Warren and Jean. Knees found a lost designer and put him out to shine again. It's wonderful. I, I want to have this on every single episode. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure for our next guest <laughs> to, to, to create some poetry. Sure. This is the new bar. <laughs> I noticed two similarities between your poems is the people. Mm. And the first thing that I could think of with the first poem and you were talking about your experience in education is I, I quite enjoyed where I went. So George Tafe, loud and proud, mm. quite happy to have been there. There's no way I could name three teachers. Right. And I find that quite interesting that, you, you know, you know, were you very close to the teachers? Like what was the culture like at the school for you to be, you know, think of them so fondly, so far uh, in the well, future? Well, the culture was like flash dance. It's the best way I can describe <laughs> it. There was a lot of energy. They, there was first years and second years and I started out part-time and I was really blessed because my mother saw how long the hours were to do it part-time and how much time it was going to take me four years. And she kindly uh, suggested that I go full-time. Right. When I had that opportunity to go full-time, I really had that full experience. So there's two years, I went back into first year. Uh, and I think the one floor was first year, second floor, the top floor was the second year students. And it was just buzzing. It wasn't a sort of thing now where students uh, they're allocated, they're timetabled, they work part-time jobs somewhere. There's no time to hang out and produce work and think and dream and make. And, you know, Randwick for me was just one of those really exciting times where, you know, I made work. I learned so much because I, you know, I, I'm not an artist. I didn't start out as an artist. And so every lesson was just, you know, so eye-opening and so wonderful and you know, and I felt also really blessed that I was allowed to be there full time. Mm. Do you think that was because you were doing it part time, and so you you could see the the opportunity that you had that you really had to make it work? You were lucky to be where you are. You found something you're passionate about when you didn't really have a direction from year twelve, and then suddenly straight in full time. Yeah, well, I need to make this work. I got a I, I applied for a, a cadetship at George Patterson Advertising, which I I thought I had, and then I got kicked out because they wanted account service people and they didn't want creatives. Right. So, but I had a really great three months there and learned a lot and met a few people there that I'm still friends with now. And, but also saw a side of advertising that is just not around anymore. Like Bryce Courtney was writing books up on the top floor. It was, you know, the car, the, the, the car park was just full of every prestige car that you could think of at the time. 
I used to buy Jeffrey Cousins sandwich, you know, and I still remember it to this day. He has a chicken and avocado sandwich <laughs> with a nectar juice and it had to be put on the passenger seat of his Rolls Royce. That's a lot of pressure, putting yeah. the juice on this. <laughs> I remember taking up to the bank a million dollars, over a million dollars in cash uh, on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, that was part of my, one of my jobs as dispatch. I loved it and I really wanted to work in it badly. And it w- wasn't to be. And Paul Cox, this guy from who was the Sterling Cigarettes account director, let me go. He was in charge of the cadets. And then I, you know, crashed and... I was living at home with mum. My parents are divorced, as you probably worked out. And I applied for work and I ended up working in Dean's Art on Oxford Street. And I did that in 88. Mm. I left school in 87. And that was fantastic because part-time job, it was in an art store. It sort of gave me a real sense of things. It gave me a real sense of materials. But also it made me understand how difficult it is to earn I think it was $276 a fortnight I think I was on. It just was really hard making a buck and, and you know, these artists would come in and, you know, I would dream of being them. So when mum said to me, you know, you can, like, go full-time, I want you, because she could see that I really loved it and I want you to do this full-time and give it the best opportunity you can, which is, you know, fantastic foresight. Yeah. So when I got there... I just squeezed that thing as mm. hard as I could and got every drop I could out of yeah. it. And I think that's a, that's the benefit of a gap year in a way. Yeah. That you really, like a lot of students that I've taught at Monash and Swinburne, the best students are the ones that uh, leave for a while and come back mm. and realise the gift it is to be educated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and no, I completely agree. Can we, can we talk about the, because you said I didn't start out artistic and I think when I look at your writing now and even, even your website, it's like, you know, the art is, the art is strong in this one. Yes. Where, and, you know, we spoke on the phone and I said it felt like sort of five, six, seven years ago that really started to come into play, I guess. is Did something happen at that time that you, made you kind of move more that way or was it just it was always going to happen? Yeah, I, I think across your career, you, when you start out, you sort of establish your tools and then and and their tools are you know the basics and that's where i think a lot of young designers you know that that's where they kind of spend a lot of time in behance and then you know you get and i reckon it's about a decade long and then you get into this thing which i call voice which is where you use your tools to express ideas and so forth and influences that you might have but they're still formative and then you get into this space which i call vision which is where you use your tools and your voice to actually execute some sort of purpose or some sort of vision in, in your practice. And then, you know, once you get to, I suppose, 30, then and it's really only been in the last few years that I've actually been thinking about legacy, which is this idea of what are you here for? I remember James Brown, from uh, formerly from MASH, but now UFO, we did a talk together in Paris a few years ago and uh, for AGI, and... He confronted me with this story where one of the indigenous aunties asked him after a project, what are you here for? And he rattled on about this idea, you know, I'm making posters and being graphic designer and all that kind of stuff. And she chuckled and laughed and so forth. And, you know, eyes turned on James and she said to him, you know, about you white guys, you know, you never really get it. What are you here for? And I suppose that's where legacy comes in and you kind of really look at that idea of, what are you here for as a practitioner? What sort of mark do you want to make as a creator? What sort of change do you want to influence? You know, what's the point of, you know, spending 40 years, 50 years making work? And I suppose when you look at someone like Ken Cato, I suppose one of his legacy projects is the Age Ideas project. Herbert Spencer had Typographica. You know, it's a, it's, it's a thing that you get with maturity, I suppose. So getting back to your seven year thing, me seven years ago I suppose I was sort of in I really haven't I've been vacillating between voice and vision for a lot of time and it's really been only the last seven years that I understood I had a practice and I was teaching at Monash and that was um, my second stint of teaching and I think it was every Tuesday at lunchtime they'd have like a major Australian artist do an artist lecture and they just kept on rattling on about practice 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 and I remember there was um, Mike Parr, the incredible Sydney-based Australian artist. He's, he spoke about this idea of practice and so forth. And it, 
I was definitely suffering from depression and I was really very much uh, adrift at many levels and it resonated with me what he was saying about being a practice led so I at that moment I looked back into my practice and really just established what it was they're all there like my influence was there my inquiry was there the materials I used the tools the skills the purpose and how I showcase my work but I suppose it's the act of actually capturing that and measuring it regularly and and having this idea of what are you here for and kind of going okay as a practitioner my inquiry is this um, and I use these materials and I suppose seven years ago I became very aware of that and it, look it just came down to that you know as a uh, designer in Melbourne, you know, I, I have seen, you know, great times and, and been very grateful for them and I've seen low times and, you know, in those times where you're back against the wall, you need to, I suppose, really dig deep to find out what is different and particularly as an old school graphic designer, there's just so many young studios out there that have got so much more to offer and, you know, they're you know, their work is, you know, far more, I suppose, attractive because it appears to be, you know, on the cutting edge of whatever that is. You really need to, you know, dig deep to find who you are as a practitioner and keep going because I think it's very hard. It's sort of interesting being involved in ACTA. You, you don't really see very many designers my age, you know, turning up to events and participating in, in the community because they're, you know, in their own world and a lot of them actually don't feel welcome. That's interesting. That's what that's the opposite of what you would think, sure, right? Yeah. Like the aspiring designers think, well, it's going to take me a long time to, to build up my rep and get some good work behind me and work with some reputable clients and mm. be using air quotes for the, the crew at home successful mm. before, I'm, before I have permission to join this club. But mm. you're actually saying that there's like a top end kind of level where they don't, they don't feel welcome. When I started out, when I used to go to events, they really felt like a sense of timber. And timber to me is young, old, male, female, you know, a mix of people from various backgrounds and cultures and so forth. There's timber in the community, right? And I think, you know, at a lot of at you know a lot of the actor events I've noticed that it, it is very young, mm. and, and in a way you just feel like you're on, on your own, you know, because there's, and I found this in teaching too that, uh, and I suppose it comes back to that sort of talking to people on the telephone thing, people tend to either just sit on their hands and not they'll, they'll see someone like me there on my own and they won't come up to me and say hi. Yeah. They'll kind of think, okay, that's Andrew Rush and I'm going to leave him alone. Right. It's that kind of interesting thing that um, imposter syndrome is happening on both sides in the sense that the designer who's been there and done it is feeling like they're not welcome, but the young new designer is thinking, oh, my God, I could never go and talk to them because I haven't, I haven't got anything. Yeah, it's true that... Uh, another project which I've started, an outside project, which is um, the powerhouse thing, that, that actually came about from being in an awards project and there was an in-house designer, a young girl, and she was working with the Melbourne Museum. It really struck me. She was. Um, I asked her what she was here for and what she was doing and it was the year that I was judging in 2018 and she mentioned that, you know, she works in-house and, you know, you wouldn't want to know what I'm working on and, you know, there was a real sense of a being apologetic for being in-house. Yeah. And I thought, what the hell's this? You know, this this young girl has created a project which was, you know, incredible. If I could have awarded a couple of pinnacles for things, there was a soundtrack that they helped oversee was, you know, just the most beautiful piece of long soundtrack that, you know, I've heard. It was really creative and really exciting and that was overseen by that department. And, you know, she gets paid a great wage. She gets a super. She probably gets rostered days off yeah. and she's making awesome work, you yeah. know? And so why is she apologizing for it? I think it's tough too now because studios are, there are not as many people working in small studios anymore. Like I used to employ people and I now have an assistant and me only. I'll outsource experts or colleagues I'll work with, or yeah. even sometimes I'll go in and work, I'll go in and work in a studio if I'm sort of short on work and so forth. Talking to friends in London, New York, that's becoming the normal again yeah. as well, where everyone is sort of keeping it very small, but yeah. outsourcing. So, And it's hard for young people to meet. Yeah. Like if you haven't got mm. that stable of people, like if you think about all the studios in the country, if if they're just 
starting a studio somewhere in Collingwood, you know, in a, in some sort of shared thing and they've got a computer and the right software and yeah. they've got a Behance account and, you know, away they go. In a way, the timber is, you know, the maturity is being lost. And I suppose that respect you get from working with people of all age groups, you know, young people, you know, respecting someone's experience, but also, you know, someone else who's an older, an older person being, you know, completely blown away by, you know, a younger crew's sort of experience or yep. perception on something, you know, and it's, it's a sad thing, you mm. know, that I, I really see that because there's just no depth in studios anymore. And there are a lot of young people going out and starting studios. And, you know, at the moment, I, you know, I think we've, I've had pretty much the worst year I can account for in the last 30. It's just been so quiet and everything's been diminished and quoted on lots of projects and they haven't come through and, Mm. you know, it's been very, very tough. And I'm having a conversation with myself, you know, about this. But at least I've got friends to talk about it with who are all sharing the same experience. But even though no one's sort of really meant to talk about it, you know, we're meant to be really (laughs) successful on the outside and, you know, but deep down we've had the worst year ever, you know, and I found that when I was talking to friends, I'd kind of go, how are you going? And they'd give me the obligatory sort of Melbourne, yep, unreal power. And I go, and then I go, how are you really going? And they're going, it sucks. You know, it's been the worst year. I suppose when you lack timber in an organisation, when times are tough like now, you know, it's those reassuring words from a person that's been down that track before you that can say, look, we're going to ride this. You know, you, you, we might need to go down to a few days a week and you might need to go out and work and freelance or you might need to go in-house, you know. Mm. And, but it's happened and, you know, it, this time's here and, you know, this is the new this is the new thing now. Yeah. And I, I think that's a real shame, you know, because yeah. I think there's lots of answers that... that all generations can give to each other, particularly in this sector, you know, because I, I really see it's quite challenged. If we could sort of establish ways of creating timber in our community, it would really help the younger crews sort of see the value in working longer on something like yep. the value in not just rushing things out, the value in just spending five years just copying someone else's stuff for a while. You know, it's it's just invaluable that, do you think that's happening quite a lot in Australian design? Like this idea of, you said copying, but also... Mimicking. Mimicking, yeah. Like kind of, you know, yeah. When the internet came out, I've mentioned it in one of my things that the internet arrived and so did Sydney coming out. And the internet, what it did was in the first round of the internet, I don't know if you remember surfing it for the first time in the early 90s, 1994, surfing the internet was probably the most unrewarding experience you ever had. You know, you'd, you'd get there and surf and end up, you know, at some weird piercing site and that would be the most interesting thing on it. And then the tech wreck happened in 2002 and, or 2001 and 2002. And suddenly the, the internet did kick in and websites started to create really deep, rich experiences. And I suppose from that moment on, we just sort of got into this space where we all started to, instead of going to the library and referencing something or researching something, we just go straight to Google. And, you know, I sort of noticed a real, I suppose being a practitioner for such a long time now, every time I see a new filter in um, a product, I see that come out in the expressed in the work. And I've always wanted to do this project where, you know, you, you sort of truck back to when I started in, uh, 1989 and 1988 I, like I worked on I worked on freehand one you know I sort of used a right. shoebox computer I remember drawing a logo on that where we I, you had to plot it on a graph you couldn't actually scan it and trace you know you had to plot it you would graph it traditionally and then you would use that graph to create that thing it was just very archaic mm. Uh, in, when I talk about practice, you know, technology is a big influencer on, on what gets created. I've always wanted to create a project around how technology has affected graphic design. So, you know, Gaussian blur, you know, mm. there was a lot of Gaussian yeah. blur work. You know, now we've got this layering thing. So much work now is layered. And I was up here on Oxford Street and there's an old Telstra brand which has the old knockout in the ellipse. Yeah. Yeah. And FHA did that, uh, Flett Henderson Arnold, and... You know, they were trained in a time where 
everything had to be, you know, the perfect sort of idiom of black and white, positive and negative, you know, image making. And they had to reduce, you know, right down to something you could put on a computer chip to something you could put on the side of a building. So it became really important to have very simple mark making. I I still get students to do that because I think it's still just, it makes you think about things in a a very different way. Mm. Um, Can we have the third? Yeah, sure. Over where the hills lap, I see a bridge that is not there, in a dying sky with scales of gold, peach, indigo, red. A milk bar wall says anyhow with a little star in a font that looks like Caslon, not Cooper Black. The library was killed by surfing the next. Frutiger is black and white. Posters by Weingart, a designer called John Mellon. Headlines by the Campaign Palace are the best. 1984 by Apple. Mojo Chiat Day, Iggy, Andy, Beethoven, Stereolab, Massive Attack, The Next. Bobby Gassy meets Gary Emery, Lancashire, Spatchers, Harkus. Interior design by Alison Bell, Martin Sharp, Rendolph, Emont, Kinyi. The Art of Falling Upwards, Single Images, Stories from the Backyard, Messy Elegance, Sometimes from Nothing, Poetic Nods, Mash Everyday Heroes, Teacups of Colour You Least Expect. What was this section? Future of what's happening now, mm. but also a little bit about community because mm. you're massively involved. I mean, we haven't got to the teaching, but I wanted to talk about night art a little bit because that's... Yep. Can you describe quickly what, what well, it is? Well, part of my practice is I consult, I do, a, I do a job and I also create products. One of the products that I collaborated with a um, art aficionado and very passionate about art deborah staley she approached me a few years ago and we formed this thing called night art which was about helping the community or melbournians understand their artists and their practices and we did that at night so it was a single night in winter where studios galleries artworks happenings all happened in one night Mm. and at its height we had twenty thousand people roll through it in the night it ran for about seven years um at the moment where it's in a what we call a hiatus it's still running but uh the funding has been really difficult to mm. to nail down we just couldn't get a major sponsor the council has been very supportive however it, it needs more than twelve thousand dollars to run it and yeah. we just you know it just became impractical i remember attending going to a bunch of different studios but what was really interesting is just it was really nice to kind of meet like everyone was there for the same purpose mm. and, and the conversations that happened in the pub afterwards. Yeah. The project was designed for what we call the art curious. So people that really love art but are afraid to go into a gallery, mm-hmm. you know, because mm. the galleries are very often, you know, they're very closed worlds of people that know each other. It was an opportunity for a person that was curious or people who were curious about art to attend a gallery, look at a work, potentially meet an artist and get a real sense of, the art and the city that's, that, it, that it's in. And it, it very much served that sort of purpose. And I'm glad you enjoyed the experience. But we just couldn't, because it was one night and look, there's, you know, white night and there's, uh, I think when I worked on Agda 10 years ago, um, we had this incredible group of people and 3 Deep Design did this research and there was over 300 events in Melbourne a year. Mm. And so there's several events a week and. It, down there, sometimes you just feel like you just want to stay at home. There's a bit too much <laughs> no going on. Events. Well, it's colder. Yeah, it's colder, but also there's just, there is so much going on there, yeah. which is part of the reason why I moved there as a, like leaving precinct or setting up a precinct studio down in Melbourne was that opportunity to be in a city and be the observer rather than in the thick of it. Mm. My genuine question for you is you've seen so much like, 30 years been practicing forever straight Mm. out um, doing your own thing Mm. around the very beginning of Australian Graphic Design Association being involved with them for so much AGI being a member there was only seven I think in Australia for a very very long time you were one of those seven when you were nominated you were the youngest person ever nominated Mm. there is amazing Mm. this is all flattery there is a question at the end just Mm. like what is your what is your perception or your perspective on graphic design either and you can answer it in one or two ways multiple choice Mm. just australia like how are we faring up against the world and where are we going and you are you feeling very positive about 
what we do and how we communicate and the type of work that we do or are you feeling it's you know are you more pessimistic at, at the way things are going tagging on some of those things like mimicking artwork and homogenization that we kind of covered a little bit earlier i'm very excited for australian output and mm. it's just in this space at the moment where a lot of the creatives are, this whole distraction of the internet and mm. the globalization of creativity and also i, I think to an obsession with being the self-commentator and the narcissist, you know, and the social media thing as well. Right. It's really taken away from that inquiry about place that we've got here. Mm. Like my practice is built around um, celebrating Australia and where we are and the familiar and what we know. And it fuels everything I do, like language, from language through to expression, through to colours, through to just the way that we solve problems, you know, we you know, very, very resourceful country. And I think the real opportunity for Australian practice is to get back to being Australian right. rather than worrying about looking like a Swiss, Swiss designer and right. or worrying about, that's what I lo notice a lot about social media. It's actually quite incredible, but a great deal of the work I see looks no different from my Swiss colleagues. And, you know, I, I kind of think that where is their voice in this work mm. you know and i really feel a lot of practitioners is just in that sort of formative stage of skills and finding voice yeah because once we find our voice as practitioners a really powerful thing will happen and and i think the thing is is that what people love about australia is not us looking like them it's actually us being us mm. i did this talk in beijing a few years ago and when I was developing the talk and it was one of my favorite talks ever I was just struck because there was just so many international speakers because part of my actor thing is I used to look after a lot of these international speakers and became very good friends with them and you know my family are very long-suffering and they'd go to the zoo with them or go down to Bell's Beach yeah. or you know and I would go out of my way to show them something that's you know a real insider's view of say living in Sydney or Melbourne what I found really fascinating is that when they got here, they didn't really want to understand the design scene. They wanted to understand the beach. They wanted to understand mm -hmm. the opera house. They wanted to hold a koala. They wanted to go to Uluru. They wanted to meet some indigenous people. They wanted to see indigenous art. Mm -hmm. And when I was putting together this talk in Beijing, it sort of struck me that, you know, the, because what really killed me too as a practitioner is that, you know, I was... I've been presenting with people like David Pigeon and David Lancashire over the years and David Pigeon would be presenting his practice and, you know, it would be presenting to a thinning crowd, you know, internationally, you know, like there, there would be people that are really interested in his work and so forth, but because he's not a big name, you know, there was this thing where it's, it's someone from Australia and, you know, you, you just wouldn't get that attention that Australian practitioners needed. So I decided to, as a surprise, I hired a koala suit and I, I did <laughs> the talk. I started the talk off, I had 45 minutes in Beijing and I started the talk off and I said that I left my notes behind and I quickly jumped into the koala suit and Timey Kangaroo Downsport was playing and I came back in dancing in this koala suit and that whole greeting took more time than I had allocated. So, um, but I, I just wanted to make this impression that Australians have a unique point of view they have a unique voice and they're they're worth you know making time to see because you know the swiss are so good at the americans are so amazing you know there's just these incredible people all around the world and you know australia also has a very unique way of seeing the world and you know i wanted to sort of celebrate that so getting back to your question about like what i see the real opportunity is is it's, it's about designers embracing their inner thing that got them to do design in the first place rather than being caught up with the idea of being a designer Brilliant. if you know what i'm saying Absolutely, like the, yeah. it's that idea of your work and where you came from and the way you hear things and the way you see things that is what makes work unique around the world and it's those practitioners that embrace that they're the ones that get you know, a lot of attention and notoriety. Like if you look at 
Eamon Donnelly, mm-hmm. who's just done the Milk Bar book. Yeah. You know, that book is an incredible passion project, and there's just so much interest around that. And you know, I, I challenge everyone who's listening to you know really f- look for that in themselves and celebrate being Australian rather than looking at Behance with respect to Adobe, of course, and you know seeing the main influence in their practice are from people that aren't from here. Yeah, absolutely. What a great way to go. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and see, I mean, I would, I would suggest everyone goes to your workout life studios website because that is a treasure trove. It's a super interesting design website as well. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's got your amazing writing on there as Mm. well when you can really lose yourself. So it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Do you have an Instagram or anything you send yeah, people to? Yeah, I've got Workart Life at Workart Life is my Instagram tag, and again, that's not me doing selfies of food and <laughs> and in a koala suit with and, selfie. Yeah, or you know, I don't do project previews or any of that kind of. I, I really try and talk about what I see, mm. and I try and add value to that. I've got this project, as I said, Powerhouse, where I'm. Uh, I'm really focusing on in-house studios. I really believe that in-house studios are going to change the face of creativity across the world. I really want to be involved in helping them realise the power of their studios and realising that they can lead through creative excellence rather than being seen as a version of quick copy and become really powerful entities like, say, the World Record Club was in Australia or... Uh, any of those like, like Google, for example, or Adobe, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're really leading, they're leading the conversation about creativity. And yes, there's my website. There's a few blogs that I've kept. When I had kids, I blogged prolifically. They're the People Things blog and the Underground Future People blog. And I also have a thing called Neo Koala, which is a, um, a Tumblr page as well. Cool. We'll Fantastic. find all those links and put them at the bottom. And uh, Matt? Matt underscore you. Leach on Instagram. Cool. You can find me on pretty much everything at Flynn Tracy. And you can find this episode and more at AUSDesignRadio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at AUSDesignRadio. Thank you. Oh, Andrew. one more thing. Oh, yeah. If you've got a moment, go see the Paper Tiger show at the National School of Art up in Darlinghurst. Okay. The most incredible uh, presentation of Australian posters from 1970. And, oh, and wow. around. Oh, really? I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know anything I didn't know about this. Amazing. Like, I mean, one of the great shows that I've seen and also a show that I think should be on permanent display at the New South Wales Art Gallery or the like. It's an incredible collection of work. And we'll share that out through socials before this yes. episode goes yeah. live and we'll leave that. We'll leave yeah. it in as well. But great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank yeah. you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.